This has been going on for almost a decade now, and it's linked uh, listeners to two of the greatest geopolitical scandals in sports. And when I say geopolitical, I'm not exaggerating. This is like John le Carre, you know, those international spy thrillers meets Chariots of Fire. This is big time, major politics, and it's about the survival of states. So, you know, we're moving beyond sports corruption, we're moving beyond match fix, we're moving beyond doping, we're moving into the very existential threat to some of these things. And the two classic actors, the ones that are head and shoulders above everyone else, are of course the Russians and the Qatar people. And they are into sports for two diametrically different reasons, but it is both conditional on the existential strength of their current governing regimes. This is Declan Hill, and you're listening to No Holds Barred with Eddie Goldman. Hello everyone around the world. Once again, this is Eddie Goldman on No Holds Barred. There's an old saying in baseball that you can't tell the players without a scorecard. But corruption in world sport has gotten so deep-rooted that these days you can't easily tell the genuine fighters against sports corruption from those posers who are really paid shills for world champions of sports corruption. To provide us with such a scorecard, so to speak, we once again discuss this with our colleague Declan Hill, who is an investigative journalist, academic, consultant, an expert on match-fixing and corruption in international sports. He is presently an associate professor of investigations at the University of New Haven. But before we get to that, a word from the sponsors of No Holds Barred. No Holds Barred is brought to you by LennyHart.com, the home of Lenny Hart. The legendary MMA and sports announcer, voice actor, singer, actress, and comedian. Lenny is also known for her jazz vocals with her Lenny Hart Jazz Cabaret Band. For more information, to book her or to order a custom message from her, go to LennyHart.com. That's L-E-N-N-E-H-A-R-D-T dot com. And... Skulls Fight Shop, home of the Skulls double-end bag, the perfect punching bag for your combat sports training. Skulls double-end bags provide a realistic striking target and help improve speed, distance, and timing skills. Hang it and hit it right out of the box. No pump required. Skulls Fight Shop, advancing combat sports equipment for the next generation of fighters. For more information, go to Skulls, that's S-K-U-L-L-Z, fightshop.com. And Adolfina Studios, 
original art prints, and handcrafted fine jewelry. For more information, go to Etsy.com, that's E-T-S-Y dot com, slash shop, slash Adolfina Studios, that's A-D-O-L-P-H-I-N-A Studios. Also, please subscribe to the No Holds Barred page on Patreon for much more No Holds Barred content, that's at Patreon.com, slash Eddie Goldman. Hello everyone around the world, welcome back. This is Eddie Goldman, No Holds Barred. A lot of people have been talking for a long time about corruption in sport. There are many people have been writing books and articles and doing interviews about it. And now it seems there's a new breed that has come along talking about corruption in sport, but many of those people are actually representing entities or organizations which themselves are corrupt and figuring out who's who who's really against sports corruption and who are the corrupt actors claiming to be against sports corruption and trying to fool people gets a little difficult more difficult than it had been in the past so to discuss this once again we have on the line with us Declan Hill and once again Welcome to No Holds Barred. Hey, thanks, Eddie. Thanks for having me back on. Glad you could be with us. And, and I know for many years, a lot of people have been discussing the need for some type of world anti-corruption agency, roughly similar but, but better run than WADA. And that has not come to fruition. But now we have all these websites and all these organizations saying, yeah, we're, we're really against sports corruption and posting articles and retweeting things, a lot of times which are about real corruption, match fixing and, and doping and so forth, but which have uh, other objectives than to really rid world sport of corruption. So, so tell us, how, how can we tell who's real and, and who's not? in this whole situation okay let's let's take a number of steps back because this has been going on for almost a decade now and it's linked uh listeners to two of the greatest geopolitical scandals in sports and when i say geopolitical i'm not exaggerating this is like john le Carre, you know those international spy thrillers meets chariots of fire this is big time major politics and it's about the survival of states. So, you know, we're moving beyond sports corruption, we're moving beyond match fix, we're moving beyond doping, we're moving into the very existential threat to some of these states. And the two classic actors, the ones that are head and shoulders above everyone else, are of course the Russians and the Qatar people. And they are into sports for two diametrically different reasons, but it is both conditional on the existential strength of their current governing regimes. I'll pass over Russia pretty quickly because, you know, you've been following sport, you get it. Hard power, the more Olympic medals, the more major sporting tournaments, more champions there are hanging out in Russia, the better Vladimir Putin and his regime looks like. You know, this is bread and circus stuff going back 2,000 years to the height of the Roman Empire and the Caesars, you know. 
other one is soft power. And that's the Qatar people, and they've been running a soft power regime since the mid-1990s. And soft power is a political scientist theory. You have tanks, planes, you know, an army defend your regime or your country. But you've also kind of got this weird cultural power. So, um, you know, famously Rhodes, uh, Cecil Rhodes, the mining magnate, established a scholarship for students around the world to go to Oxford and Cambridge, choosing the young people in these countries who would become, had the best potential to become leaders, uh, thought influencers in the country. It was thought by bringing them to the UK for two or three years while they were in their formative years that you would be able to control them, you would be able to influence them much more easily, uh, you know, you know, when they become prime minister, the minister of finance or, or whoever. So this soft power concept has been around for a long time, and the Qataris, after yet another of their interminable palace coup d'etats, where one of the sons gets rid of the dad, they take over and they're like, okay, we've got to get some soft power here because we're a tiny little desert enclave. The Saudis yawn and roll over in the bed, and basically they've invaded us. If it's not going to be the Saudis, you know, the, uh, the Iranians will jump into a rowboat, paddle across the Strait of Hormuz, and that's it. I mean, it is tiny, it's indefensible, um, you know, half, the, half the country wouldn't want to be defended anyway. You know, it's just, it, it's just a nightmare. It's kind of Kuwait was sitting on, like, oil on the bum of a rock. You know, it, it, just, it, it just can't be taken over very easily. So they came up with a really interesting idea, which was not only were they going to build up a reasonably okay military hardware, but uh, you know, even that, it's not going to hold out more than a morning against the uh, Saudis or the Iranians. The, 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 the rulers make enough to jump in their private jets and take off to Switzerland. That's pretty much it. But what they decided to do was get really in, first of all, into the media and journalism. And they founded that channel that we all know about called Al Jazeera to, to, to promulgate their ideas and their concepts around the world. And then in the early 2000s, because yet another of the interminable sons that the uh, you know guys have there, the ruling family has, really likes his football, soccer. And they began to get into a big way into world soccer. And they took over a number of mega sporting events. And the most famous one was the capture in December 2010. So we've jumped forward now a number of years to 2010, where they get the rights to host the 2022 World Cup of Soccer. And that is the biggest sporting event in the world, Qatar by any logistical uh, measurement that FIFA could put up, failed them all. It was too hot to run it. It was a bastion of terrorism. Uh, it was, you know, it's a tiny country, um, you know, comparable to Manhattan, but, but without any of the infrastructure that Manhattan has. Just, it was just a nightmare, and it failed all its logistics <clears throat> tests that FIFA put on. But in a whirl and web of various conspiracies and collusion and corruption stories, a number of books have been written about the, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, stories of how Qatar managed to land this World Cup hosting. Uh, the guy that engineered the World Cup hosting was a few months later thrown out of FIFA for corruption. It was just a nightmare. So really, really early on, the Qataris realized they had a problem. Uh, you know, very few people believed that they they got it. 
you know, fairly. Um, there's a famous photo of Bill Clinton sitting in the FIFA headquarters as they announced that the World Cup is going to go to Qatar, and his face looks like thunder. He's so angry. Um, in January, uh, literally four or five weeks later, the Qataris make a huge donation to the Clinton Foundation. They also give uh, expensive watches to many people inside FIFA, the FIFA staff. And in an act of genius, Eddie, like an absolute act of genius, three months after this incredibly controversial decision to award, to award the world's biggest sporting event to this tiny desert enclave, they set up what they're going to claim is the world's leader in sport, anti-sport corruption. So basically there's a parade forming down the main street and they're going to jump to the front of the parade and make sure that they can direct where it's going. And so since 2011, they've been highly controversial. There's a number of things we can explore in this interview. It's been, in, in my opinion, it's been utterly without credibility. It's utterly tainted much of my daily life, both academically and in journalism, because so many people are taken in by this issue. Uh, it's not saying that every single paper, every single article, every single initiative, and there are many, that has been funded with Qatar or Russian money is necessarily entirely bad, but it becomes so tainted and various agendas are pushed so heavily that it really is akin to tobacco's donations to public health in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. The, the research becomes so skewed the work and the discussion becomes so skewed that it's very, very difficult. Well, that, that's the thing. I, I noticed uh, years ago they finally got it off our cable TV system, but they used to have uh, RT Russia Today, the uh, Russian state-sponsored, quote-unquote, news channel. And they'd have people on there who were very critical of a lot of inequality in the U.S. And many of the reports dealt with real issues that existed in the U.S., and they would highlight that. But, of course, yeah, Eddie, everything Eddie, in hang Russia on a second. was... Eddie, 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 yeah. Eddie, stop it, stop it. I have absolutely no problem with Russia TV, and I've not got no problem with Al Jazeera, because unless you're an idiot and you can't look at the icon in the corner of the screen, you know exactly what you're getting. You're getting a point of view which is very clearly backed by either Putin or the, the Qatari. That, that's and my so there's point. An that's my There's point. an openness about the debate. There's an openness to the viewer's conceit. The problem and the issue that we're discussing on this podcast is that most people don't know. So when they'll see, for example, the United Nations Office on Drug and Crime, the UNODC, issuing a kind of bland statement about sports doping, they have absolutely no idea that much of the UNODC money or discussion of sports doping and sports integrity is financed by the Russians. That's the issue. When people are not clear where the cash is coming from, where the agenda is being promulgated and pushed from. My point was that they gain credibility because they will sometimes report things that are real but biased and skewed because they don't just go on and say, Putin is great, you know, the monarchy is great. They'll talk about certain issues, and they'll ha and they'll hire people that are journalists that will write like journalists, not, 
in a, in an overly strident tone and so forth to sort of masquerade that they're really doing independent journalism. That that's that's my point, and uh, I you you can't believe anything because I know with RT they would fake uh, videos and mangle up facts and all that. So even if you think something you've seen it reported by a credible source elsewhere, you don't know what they've done with that information. So I don't even, I mean, they got rid of it on the cable system, but that, it, all that stuff is available on the internet. So I don't even, I don't even bother to look at it. Yeah, with, uh, look, again, I go back, I, I'm a fan of some programs on Russia TV. I think America's Lawyer is very good. I love listening to Jesse Ventura. Um, but I'm able to see, and all the other viewers are able to see, that this is funded by Russian taxpayers. We understand immediately that this is a Russian thing. And frankly, I switched off their news. I think I, I, I can't swallow it's as bad as CNN or Fox at the moment, both of which have gone to the dark side as far as I'm concerned in, in terms of journalism. What I'm talking about is a covert campaign where people seem to say right things but really push the agenda. And let me give you and the, the, the listeners uh, a real sense of this. Um, one of the ways it's very, very easy to tell whether an academic or uh, a researcher has taken cash from the Qataris and Russians is that they almost always, there are some, uh, there are some honorable exceptions, but very few, blame the athletes. They say this is a problem of lack of ethics by the athlete. They don't have enough integrity not to take the dope, not to take the drugs. In fact, there was a, a, a conference sponsored in Moscow in 2005, in the fall of 2005, just after the first McLaren report emerged, showing very clearly that what Yulia and Vitaly Stepanov had said was that there was a system. And if you were an Olympic athlete in Russia, you had no choice but to get with the program. Um, you know, it was just sustained and systemic doping. And there was no independent ethic allowed for the athletes in many of these sports. A few sports, you know, it was, it was less. But for most sports, to be part of the program, you had to take the dope. So you can see that when I go to academic conferences, when I'm looking through the sports integrity section. In fact, I have my research team now at the University of New Haven, a couple of my doctoral students, are tracing back when the academics went to conferences, you know, these expensive, uh, all expense paid conferences and nice locations that are put on by these organizations, and where, you know, how much of that is linked to this idea that it's all the fault of the athletes. There's no systemic corruption, it's all independent, ethical lapses by these young people. Right, and that's why some of these websites that do this kind of thing can feel free when an individual athlete is caught doping to just repost that, that so-and-so, you know, use this and they'll give the specific uh, drug and how long they were sanctioned for and so forth and so on to give the appearance that they're anti-doping. But you can't use Look, a mean, phrase like this. There's things. a major issue. Let, let, let me move away from a really classic one, which is human trafficking. And Qatar is a major center, global center for human trafficking. And those those aren't my words. You know, I want to want to stress this very clear. It's not Declan Hill saying this, independent academic and journalist. It's Human Rights Watch. 
it's Amnesty International. It's 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 these internationally credible, well-researched human rights organizations which have looked into the situation, the plight really, of migrant workers building the infrastructure for the World Cup. And they're talking about now, in 2021, hundreds of thousands of workers being trafficked. Now, you Expl- can explain what that end. means. Being explain what that means about being trafficked. With what those excuse me, I'm are. sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, of course, hey, that means when you're taking workers from the Philippines, from Nepal, from Bangladesh, from countries that are, are poor, you, you, the the workers come. They're usually brought in by some kind of debt, um, you know, payment. Um, they arrive in Qatar and a passport away from them. And they're signed up for effectively a system. Um, again, these are not my words. This is human rights words of modern day slavery, where they have little choice. You know, if the circumstances go badly, um, you know, they, they, they can't take their passport and go to the airport and go home. And say, hey, thanks very much. That's not it. The local employers, the local companies, the Qatari companies, really the, the control over these guys. I, I, you know, one of the great symbols of this was the Doha Marathon a number of years ago. And it shows you the, the weird cockamamie world of Qatar and their sporting establishment. They decided, um, you know, as they do on kind of incompetent way they have, that they're going to run a marathon and they're going to have, it was going to be a high profile one, it was going to be a massive one. So they, they forced a number of these, you know, thousands of these workers were building their stadiums to participate in the marathon, in their flip-flops, in the middle of a Qatari heat, where, you know, after nine o'clock in the morning, it's almost impossible to move, let alone run 42 kilometers. And you have these pictures all over YouTube of these poor workers collapsing and, you know, staggering along through those blistering sun. That's, that's the situation in Qatar in terms of sports. That is the human rights situation and excuse me, the human trafficking situation that they have there. And this is well known. And yet they're flying in Cindy McCain, the Republican uh, doyen, the, and I, I have nothing against Republicans, by the way. I'm an uh, aggressively independent journalist. Flying in to make speeches about human trafficking in other countries. There's a whole campaign to uh, promulgating the purported of African, young African players coming to Europe, soccer players coming to Europe who are purported to human traffic to come and, and try out for these European soccer teams. I, I, as you know, and as many of our listeners know, I've traveled around Africa, I've researched, I know this area, I know the primary people who've researched human trafficking of soccer players from Africa, and they're speaking about possibly hundreds of cases. And, and I, in no way do I mean to diminish those cases, but we're talking hundreds compared to hundreds of thousands of people who are trafficked. So much so that people are talking about modern-day slavery. They're talking about stadiums of blood. They're talking about massive, massive problems. And this is simply being, attention is being deflected very purposefully from this issue. Now, how do you tell the difference when people are looking at these these sites or looking at statements from these conferences between who is real and who is not real in other words what well, look, are some of the, what are some of the ones that are 
that really do know a lot of people really dealing to the best of their ability with sports corruption. Well, look, the gold standard is a Danish organization called Play the Game. Uh, and I strongly recommend for the few listeners who don't know their work to go and check it out. They've got a, a disparate view of voices from around the world. You'll even see some Qatari supporters uh, have been given room there. The Russians are invited constantly to show up there. Uh, but always under their own, um, you know, their own flags, waving their own flags. Uh, I think the worst case is the International Center for Sports Security. This was the organization set up by the Qataris and by a guy called Mike Lee, who was the kind of cardinal relisher of international sports media, a brilliant, amoral genius, and he set up this center. Um, the ICSS, based out of Doha, Qatar, is working, uh, you know, held a conference that my colleagues at Mediapar, a French uh, investigative site, revealed that they, they sent a conference on sports integrity, and then they spied, they broke into the guys' hotel rooms while they were downstairs at this conference on, quote, sports integrity, and they hacked into their computers. So they, they it was a classic honey trap. Like you, you, you can't get more brazen bizarre example of international spycraft. You invite everybody to your international conference for sporting integrity. They all go downstairs to discuss this in the conference room, and your operatives go through their rooms and hack into their computers. So it's, it's absolutely classic. It's unviable. It's, it's, it's an extraordinary case. Media power revealed this in all its ways. And and it's, it really has got in the way of really effectively delivering sensible solutions to stopping the challenges to sports integrity. This kind of operation, this kind of um, agency is really like a, a massive piece of cholesterol blocking and, and, and slowing down the flow of healthy blood. And there seemed to also be throwing around a lot of money to get a lot of uh, journalists to write for them or people to write for them and it's not exactly sports journalism is not exactly a, a lucrative uh, profession yeah, I, to I be don't in. Know if, to be clear, I don't know if ICSS pays journalists to write for them. They certainly had their favorite journalists and there's certainly a number of uh, journalists uh, who are linked to supporting the Qatari things. But I haven't actually seen their bank books and their bank balances. I've seen them go to their, these expensive conferences, and I've seen a number of their, their stories after these expensive conferences, and my eyebrows have been raised considerably. But there I mean, are other they're throwing around to other organizations, too, from what I understand. Aren't they doing that, too? Sorry, Eddie, you, you, you dropped there. I, I, so I didn't aren't hear you. they throwing around money to other organizations as well from coming from the uh, Qatari monarchy and their regime. Yeah, look, I, you know, sport washing is a massive problem there. Uh, let me talk about the other um, uh, uh, center, the United Nations Office for Drug and Crime, um, UNODC out of Vienna. Much of their uh, quote campaign for sports integrity in terms of anti-doping 
has been financed by the Russians and financed by the Russians at a particular time, 2015. So just as the revelations from Stepanov were coming out that Russia had mounted a serious, sustained, systemic uh, doping campaign among their athletes, they got in, the Russians got into the UNODC, and quite cheaply, you know, it only cost a few million dollars to take over or fund these United Nations organizations, was able to direct a number of academic conferences, always pushing this idea that it was the individual athlete's fault, that individual athletes lack ethics. And so my, um, uh, my sense for uh, people that are interested in that is when you're reading an academic paper or a book and you hear this this problem based largely upon the individual athlete's ethics, really check, really start to be skeptical. It doesn't mean that they are uh, always receiving money from the Russians, but it is a uh, one of the strong indicators that, that there's something going on there. Now, what do you suggest people do about this? You mentioned play the game with its uh, conferences every couple of years. They have a website. There are many different articles on it. I've been uh, covering them and discussing them for really a long time. I've had Jens Seyer Anderson, their international director, on uh, numerous times. Uh, what would you suggest people do to, to find out about this and, and to get the real information? Follow the money, follow the money, and follow the money. Um, and I, I, I don't think it's just our listeners' uh, concern, but I, I would would challenge our listeners to every time they see stuff coming out now, you know, this is a major issue for the Russian and Qatari government to take a look through the thing, see about their conflict, their declaration of conflict of interest. And sadly, in the sports integrity field, we are five decades behind public health now. Public health has to declare a conflict of interest. If you receive sponsorship money from a pharmaceutical company or an implant company or whatever, you got to declare it. Uh, and if you don't, then you get chucked out of public health. In our sports integrity field, we're still not doing that. And I've been speaking about this for years. When I go to those, for example, the play the game conferences, it's still very, very difficult to figure out who has taken money from Qatar or Russia or the gambling companies, uh, you know, who's working for the bookmaking companies, how much, who's paying for the research. And again, it doesn't mean if you've taken the money that your product at the end of the day is bad, but sure, you, people need to know this. They need to know this information. And it's not being talked about enough. It's not being overtly clear and, and, and publicly transparent as to where their money is coming from. One of the reasons that they're able to get people, which I alluded to before, is that if somebody wants to be a sports journalist, unless you're sort of a part of the game, it's just very, very difficult to just earn a, a basic living to get basic income coming in, because that's what they, yeah. that's that's what the people running. The, the editors and the publishers and that's what these people running these things really want. I mean, you, you mentioned betting, which now in the U.S. sports betting is exploding all over the place. There's more and more of it. There's more legalization of 
online sports gambling and all these types of things so you just don't see a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of coverage of all the problems associated with gambling from these same places about gambling addiction and Look, virtually, all that. virtually zero and and I think for our American listeners <clears throat> you know Every time you see somebody talking about the line, every time you see somebody talking about the gambling <clears throat> on the National Football League or NBA or whatever, count the number of times you've heard about gambling addiction. Like just, just, just see if it's even one in a hundred. I, I, I'd say it's probably one in ten thousand. People will not discuss the problems of sports gambling addiction, and that is a major pathological problem among athletes. The very people who are producing the product that you love, sports, are one of the worst and most vulnerable segments of our population to gambling. Athletes are terrible gamblers. They're, they're just disastrous because everything that makes them good as, a, as an athlete makes them a terrible gambler. And, and there's a, a, you know, a, a, an illustrious long book of major stars that have lost all their money and more have ended up deeply in debt and, and to some very peculiar characters as well through gambling. Uh, from Gianni Buffon, the great Italian goalkeeper, to Michael Jordan, to Wayne Rooney, to a whole series of these great stars. So gambling addiction is not being discussed uh, in any way, the, the, the spread of gambling addiction. And nor, frankly, Eddie, is the gambleization of sport. Um, what's happened in the UK, we've seen this from academic research coming out of the University of Bath, is that British sports, since they liberalized gambling, the European Union in the early 2000s, has really gone to go on a sense of gambleization. So sport in, in the UK is slowly, slowly, it can be stopped, and there's all kinds of discussion there, unlike America, about this, but it, it, it's basically turning into horse racing. So very few people go to a horse race because they enjoy the horses. Most of them go and for betting, and they see those horses as really a vehicle for gambling. And athletes in the UK are being transformed into the same phenomenon. It's not nearly as bad as horse racing, but it is, it is turning that way so that you're less interested in sheer athletic pursuit and you're more concerned with um, you know how to use that field of play, how to use that athletic thing as a as a mechanism for gambling. But the reason why I bring this up, the reason why I'm now talking about gambling as opposed to Russia and Qatar, is that there's a superb paper, a really good book out of the Department of Anthropology at Goldsmith College in London in 2014, talking about the effect of the gambling industry on academic research and how deeply corrupted it had become, how you couldn't trust much of the research on gambling, on the effect of gambling, on sports gambling, on addiction, because so much of it had been, so much money was coming in from the gambling industry into academics and into journalism. And my fear is the same thing is happening in sports integrity. We've now got to a point of almost no return where so much cash is coming in from these nation states that really want to uh, control the discussion, control the debate around sports integrity. And it's very difficult to see our way through it. Yeah, on the thing of horse racing, I remember, and 
and I probably have to look up the exact details, but there was a time a number of years ago in New York where I'm not sure if there was a, a strike that was going on of the the people who worked at the racetrack or what the problem was, but there was a they were holding horse races without any betting on it for like a day or two or whatever it was, and, and nobody was interested in it, you know, yep. in watching it just to to just to uh, enjoy it. And it also, you know, when I cover boxing, I also have to be careful because I don't generally don't like to make public predictions on fights because they can be there are a lot of reasons why but they can really be misused by people um, sometimes I will when I think there's an overriding issue that usually somebody has one of the fighters has been way overhyped for various reasons yep. and I'm, yep. I'm going to come out and say no 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 this is nonsense this is what's going to happen. I'm not always right, but I'm usually right in those cases. So when I break down a fight beforehand, I'll try and lay out the strengths and weaknesses. It really, in most cases, is trying to explain, is this a mismatch? Because a lot of these fights are mismatches. You don't have to fix them by telling somebody, you know, it's not your night kid, like in the old movies or something, because it's set up as a mismatch. And they know ahead of time who's going to win. Not obviously, not always, and they occasionally miscalculate. But most of the time, they know ahead of time who's going to win. So that I'll I'll point that out to people. Um, and yeah, no, absolutely. And there's a whole industry uh, that you you've talked about many times on your show, Eddie, of of the fighter mules. You know, these poor guys from. Mexico or Poland or wherever who are brought in, you know, their, their, their numbers are, and that's win-loss numbers that you'll see around fighters are exaggerated, and they're dropping basically to boost the numbers for the local, um, you know, guy who's trying to make his way up. And the network can say, really we, we, the network can say, we have two undefeated fighters in here, or both 18 and 0. And one guy with yeah. 18 and 0 has worked his way up to getting close to a title fight, and the other one with 18 0 has been beating up uh, no hopers. And some of those fights yeah. may not even exist, or may, may have been straight up fixed fights. I remember there there was one there was one fighter who would get beaten up a lot, who was notorious for uh, always falling out of the ring. <laughs> you know, come on, it's like WWE or something. Yeah, look, I, I got a lot of time for those pure guys. That, you know, they're doing whatever they can to put money on their table for for their families. In some cases, I remember one guy I, I saw from Poland fighting in Canada, and the poor guy, uh, he didn't even have boxing shoes. Like he was he was fighting, uh, you know, a course at a casino, hundreds of people watching, whatever, and 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 the poor fellow doesn't even have enough money for for a pair of boxing shoes. Um, and of course, got beaten up handily by the local favorite, and and they just oh my gosh, you know, you, you've earned every penny that they've 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 given you for this. You know, um, may I may I add a point um, to return to what we were discussing at the top of this uh, interview about soft power and how important it is um, in, in terms of an existential protection of a regime, and I'm 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 really want 
this to be clear. This is really about about uh, defending your regime, defending your family, defending government in your country using sport. So um, back in the summer of 2017, after a visit by Donald Trump to the Saudis, uh, the Saudis uh, three weeks later put a blockade on Qatar. And Qatar is essentially, as I said, a tiny desert enclave utterly surrounded by Saudi Arabia. They control all access, at least by land, and they cut off uh, both air and land access into Qatar. Three weeks later, the team, uh, and it's one of the world's biggest soccer teams now because of Qatari money, called Paris Saint-Germain, and that's the, 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 the team that the establishment, the French establishment, Loves It's in the center of Paris, Saint-Germain is a famous area there. And really, if you're connected with the French government or the French establishment or the French elite, you love jazz. Right, you know, so that's, that's yeah. sort of like the New York Yankees of French football. Yeah, no, because the New York Yankees are successful. PSG, okay. up until the time the Qataris took over, were like the loser team. They were like the guys, you know, they were like the Boston Red Sox before 2004. Okay. Every way, every you know, way they could figure out a way of losing, they managed to find it. And then the Qataris took them over and poured hundreds of millions of euro into it. And so in the middle of this blockade, in the middle of this massive geopolitical military siege, effectively on Qatar, they spent 225 million euro to buy the world's most expensive soccer player, a guy called Neymar, from Barcelona, and they bring him to this French club. Three weeks later, the president of France at the time flies to Riyadh to the Saudi capital and tries to negotiate a peaceful end to the blockade of Qatar. And you put the price 223 million euro, and it seems very, very expensive in terms for a soccer player, but the price of a French Mirage fighter jet was start somewhere around 500 million. So basically half the price of a Mirage jet, the Qataris were able to bring by so much goodwill, so much soft power, that the French president got on a plane and flew to negotiate with the Qatari enemies a peaceful end to this blockade. That's how important soft power is. That's how important sports is. That really brings tremendous protection to countries like this. And that's why it's worth influencing the debate. That's why it's worth staging these conferences and then breaking into people's room. That's why it's worth giving millions of dollars to the United Nations to kind of shift and, and influence the debate on doping for Russia. These are really, really big questions for them. Yeah, and one of the ways they're able to take advantage of it is, for example, in boxing, has been declining in popularity over many decades, which is, you know, pretty well known. And especially with the coronavirus pandemic, they haven't been able to stage fights with large crowds where they would get a lot of money from the the, yes. the ticket sales were coming in. So you already had, even before the pandemic, with all the problems in boxing, the Saudis started... Uh, bringing in a number of major fights. The Anthony Joshua, Andy Ruiz Jr. rematch was one example. 
They had Amir Khan fought a mismatch against Billy Dibb. Um, and they had the world, one of the World Boxing Super Series finals there. I think it was, was it the super middleweight final? I think that was maybe, maybe one of the others. I think that was the one they did. And they're trying to build, they're trying to diversify their economy because they know the oil is only going to last but so long. And with changes going on, the demand for oil may not even be there before it it runs out as there's a move away in certain areas from fossil fuels. So they're saying, okay, what do we do in the next few decades where we could have tourism and entertainment and all this? And now the reports are the what if they if they manage to sign it and they still haven't, the the super match, the heavyweight unification between Anthony Joshua and Tyson Fury, that they're saying now the front runner is, according to promoter Eddie Hearn, quote, the Middle East, which could be Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Dubai, somewhere else, in which case they won't have to worry about having to, say, do it in a football stadium in the UK and getting 90,000 fans there. They could have a small group of people and the revenue difference would be made up by the monarchy paying them for the rights and having media come in and talking about how wonderful things are and how things are changing because women can drive now and a few little, you know, minor things that they've been doing. Um, But they take advantage of these situations where there's an economic problem and they just offer an enormous amount of money for people to come in. And Fury had been there before. It wasn't a real fight. It was a couple of years ago. He did a a WWE show there. But both Joshua and Fury have already been uh, to Saudi Arabia. So if they go again uh, sometime this year, it won't be seen as uh, big of a deal. Because if they're going to fight in May or June or sometime like that, you're not going to be able to have any large number, if any, fans in the UK, which is where the fight will obviously do the most business. So that's what they're looking, they're looking to make that up. Now it isn't finalized, but that's an example of how they're they're looking for these holes in the system. They're looking for fights that need to make money that is unavailable in the usual places. They're looking for journalists that need to, or writers that need to get some income because it's not available, which because on the one hand, you had the shutdown of sports during the pandemic, and number two, you just had the whole collapse of journalism in general and sports journalism in particular. So there are a lot of people to, to pick off about that. So they take advantage of these situations, and they also will bring in Westerners as advisors to them and pay them handsomely to come in and say, this is what you ought to do. Because for I know when they had a, uh, a press conference for the Joshua Ruiz rematch, they brought in some of these people, and some of them were Saudis that are educated in the West, but they also had... Uh, uh, on the stage, an American who was from Brooklyn, you know, sounded like it too, you know, talking about how wonderful everything was for this event. So, uh, look, the, the, look, the human rights, 
the human rights groups call this sports washing. And before we move on any further, let's talk about Jamal Khashoggi, who was our colleague, a journalist who was murdered by the Saudi regime in the uh, consulate in Ankara, the Saudi Arabian consulate in uh, uh, Istanbul, excuse me, in Turkey. Um, he was hacked to death by people in the Saudis. Uh, the Saudis are arming and financing a genocidal war in the neighboring country of Yemen. There are appalling human rights conditions, appalling treatment of women. Uh, really, it is a, a science fiction-like type regime there. It's, it's really awful. And what they're doing is they're bringing in these major sporting events, be it boxing or whatever, and, and using that as a kind of Potomkin village to distract from these appalling human rights issues that are going on. And, and sports, I mean, you know, a private world of international boxing, I mean, it's so desperately short of moral um, stature at the moment that, you know, you've got to shrug your shoulders on it. But really, an organization like FIFA, an International Olympic Committee, these big international sporting tournaments, these big universities and academic institutions in America that don't need the cash, they shouldn't be involved. They should not be helping with sports washing. They should not be allowing their academics and their researchers and their professors to be taking cash from these regimes and governments. Well, they are. And they're trying to take as much as they can, which uh, often doesn't end up in the in the coffers of the organization, but ends up in the pockets of the the people making these deals, as we've seen from from FIFA. And it doesn't yeah. seem to be getting, it really doesn't seem to be getting any better. It, the whole thing seems to be heading to, particularly the Olympic movement, heading to a breaking point with so many scandals, so much corruption going on. The question is, when is all this going to reach critical mass and the whole thing collapses, uh, which will not certainly be good for the athletes, but it just seems with the the Russian doping scandal and the slap on the wrist that the Court of Arbitration for Sport gave Russia, assuming there's even a, a, a Summer Olympics before 2024, you know, that they could, their their uniforms can't say Russia, but they could say neutral athlete from Russia and be in the colors of the Russian flag and all of that. I mean, who, what do you think the announcers on TV are going to say? This is the neutral athlete from Russia? No, they're going to say this athlete's from Russia. You know, and there are still events that are being planned. Again, the pandemic has interrupted everything. But there, were, there are major international events still being announced and planned to be held in Russia. It's they're just they're being allowed to get away with all this stuff. And you mentioned earlier the gambling. I didn't think I'd see the day when Major League Baseball would would promote gambling. Because it used to be after the 1919 scandal, where the, the, the so-called Black Sox scandal, that they had a firm policy. No gambling, period. And... They held that for a number of decades, but when online sports betting and all that, the technology change and all that, now you turn on a show that's talking about baseball, 
they're going to tell you what DraftKings says and this, the odds and all this type of stuff. Not who you think, you know, is going to win, but they'll get into the specifics to try to give advice to gamblers and encourage them to gamble. And there'll be advertisements on MLB Network and, and during these games about it. And so what's, you know, what's the difference? And it, this could be now legal and above board, but I think it's going to have the same or similar consequences as it time goes the on. That, it risks the gambleization of sport. Where sport gradually, and, and, and listeners, uh, this isn't going to happen overnight, but, but put it in your mind that this is the, the risk that mainstream sport is going through, that, 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 that it becomes a vehicle for gambling, not an athletic pursuit. And just bear that concept in mind. The other thing which makes this conversation particularly topical, particularly relevant, is that we're going into a kind of massive year of mega events, sporting mega events. Uh, we've got the Olympics, which will go ahead. You've heard it from Declan Hill right now. Um, short of a major plague, and they're being piles of dead bodies, the Olympic uh, movement and the Tokyo uh, municipal government and the Japanese establishment is going to push that through, come what may. It's going to be an absolute disaster, and the only chance it will be of being called off won't be until late April or early May. That's when the decision will be made. There'll be that thing, and then there'll be a much, much, much more troubling game coming out of Beijing which the human rights campaigners out of the Uyghur situation have already started to dub the genocide games because of the amount of human rights abuses in and around that game. And then you turn from that's going to be scheduled for January, February of 2022, so one year from now, and then it comes into the Qatar World Cup. So in less than 18 months, starting in the summer of 2021, you'll have the three largest sporting events in the world for the first time ever. You, you know, just because of, of COVID-19, we the Summer Olympics up, so it's only six months from the Winter Olympics, and then the Winter Olympics only nine months away from the start of the World Cup. And you have the European Soccer Championship happening this summer in June of 2021. So four major sporting events, lots of opportunity for sports washing, lots of opportunity for this kind of, you know, under, under the table uh, payments to various people in quote sports integrity it's going to be a nightmare what do you want people specifically to do about it who are fighting for sports integrity who who love sport but they want to see something clean yeah follow, and follow two people follow uh, myself um, either Declan underscore Hill on Twitter uh, we've also got um, a, a fellow podcast crimewavespodcast.com or follow my blog. Then there's a couple of other people that have really got their nose and their eyes on this issue. One is Minky Wharton, M-I-N-K-Y, last name W-O-R-D-E-N, out of Human Rights Watch. And Human Rights Watch is doing fantastic work, both with Qatar, with the Olympics, with all kinds of abuse issues around Olympics. We haven't got time to discuss this in this podcast, but her research in Human Rights Watch research into this area is fantastic. And finally, uh, a, a long-time and regular guest of yours, Eddie, uh, Kareem Zidane, who has been working very hard and really uh, has covered the issue of combat sports being used for sports washing in a really good and effective way. 
Yeah, I hope to get one day to get Minky Warden on the show. So you speak with her. Tell her, uh, you know, let's set it up. Let's set up a time. Like Human Rights Watch is absolutely brilliant work. Absolutely brilliant work. Uh, you know, and and I draw our, our listeners. This is the final thing to say. I got to jump off another call, but I draw our listeners' attention to uh, a brilliant and just you know utterly moving. I mean, utterly moving and awful in terms of its content. It's well-researched content about taibatsu, which is the Japanese word for violent abuse of young athletes in Japan. Uh, in their judo dojos, 121 of their young athletes have been killed. And when I use the word killed, I, I, I don't mean they had like an accident. I mean the coaches beat them up so badly that they broke their necks or put them in brain damage or, or killed them. And so since 1983, 121 young Japanese judo athletes have been killed in their dojos. And that's a small segment that goes across Japanese sport. Um, so, look, I don't want to get too much into that. That, that was I, on I Human Rights Watch, wasn't about that? That's Human Rights Watch report coming out in July 2020. Okay. Listen, I know there's, there's endless, endless amounts of things to talk about. I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us, and we just got to keep discussing this and reporting it but I just think it's it's all it's all headed in the wrong direction at this point Eddie thank you so much for your podcast and thank you having for having me on I really appreciate it no holds barred is brought to you by lennyhart.com the home of Lenny Hart the legendary MMA and sports announcer voice actor singer actress and comedian Lenny is also known for her jazz vocals with her Lenny Hart Jazz Cabaret Band. For more information, to book her or to order a custom message from her, go to LennyHart.com. That's L-E-N-N-E-H-A-R-D-T dot com. And Skulls Fight Shop, home of the Skulls Double End Bag the perfect punching bag for your combat sports training. Skull's double-end bags provide a realistic striking target and help improve speed, distance, and timing skills. Hang it and hit it right out of the box. No pump required. Skull's Fight Shop, advancing combat sports equipment for the next generation of fighters. For more information, go to Skull's that's S-K-U-L-L-Z, fightshop.com. And Adolfina Studios, original art prints and handcrafted fine jewelry. For more information, go to etsy.com, that's E-T-S-Y dot com, slash shop, slash Adolfina Studios, that's A-D-O-L-P-H-I-N-A Studios. Also, Please subscribe to the No Holds Barred page on Patreon for much more No Holds Barred content that's at patreon.com slash Eddie Goldman. Hello everyone around the world. Welcome back. This is Eddie Goldman, No Holds Barred. 
Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the show. Thanks for listening. If you want to follow my site, my blog, the easiest way is go to eddiegoldman.com. For No Holds Barred, this has been Eddie Goldman.